It's the first few pages, it's the first few pages, it's the first few pages, it's the first few pages. Hello and welcome. You're listening to The First Few Pages, a Carlton Place Public Library podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Zeman. The aim of this podcast is to introduce you to all of the amazing books that are available for free in the public domain. You can find them online through Project Gutenberg at gutenberg.org. This week I will be taking a look at the Queen of Mystery herself, Agatha Christie, and her first full-length novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. I got my information from Britannica.com, AgathaChristie.com, Mentalfloss.com, Biography.com, and of course, Wikipedia. So let's dive right in. Agatha Christie, in full, Dame Agatha Mary Clarissa Christie, nay Miller, was born on September 15th, 1890 in Torquay, Devon, England, and died January 12th, 1976 from Wallingford, Oxfordshire, England. She was an English detective, novelist, and playwright whose books have sold more than a million copies and have been translated into some 100 languages. Before becoming a best-selling author, she was in real danger of growing up illiterate. Her mother was said to be against her daughter learning how to read until the age of eight, although Christie taught herself at the age of five. Her mother insisted on homeschooling her and refused to let her pursue any formal education until the age of 15 when her family dispatched her to a Paris finishing school. After an adolescence spent reading books and writing stories, Christie's sister Madge dared her to attack a novel-length project. She bet Agatha that she could not write a mystery which the reader would not be able to solve until the very end of the book. Christie accepted the challenge and penned The mystery, Mysterious Affair at Styles, a mystery featuring a soldier on sick leave who finds himself embroiled in a poisoning at a friend's estate. The novel, which featured Hercule Poirot, was rejected by six publishers before being printed in 1920. She only received £25 for it. The dapper Poirot, a mustachioed detective who took a gentleman's approach to crime-solving, might be Christie's best-known creation. She was said to have been inspired when she caught sight of a Belgian man boarding a bus in the early 1910s. He was reportedly a bit odd-looking, with a curious facial, hairst- uh, facial hairstyle and a quizzical expression. His fictional counterpart's debut in The Mysterious Affair at Styles would be the first of more than 40 appearances. The image of Christie as a matronly author of mystery is one of the most easily recognized by readers, but there was a time when Christie could be found catching waves. Along with her husband, Archie, Christie went on a traveling spree in 1922, starting in South Africa and winding up in Honolulu. At each step, the couple got progressively more capable of riding surfboards. Some historians believe they may have been the first British surfers to learn how to ride standing up. Agatha Christie, hang in ten. Uh, In 1926, Christie, who was already garnering a large and loyal fan base, left her home in London without a trace. She disappeared. Uh, The police were looking for her. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle is said to have gotten involved in the hunt. It could have been the beginning of one of her sordid stories, particularly since her husband, Archie, had recently disclosed that he had fallen in love with another woman and wanted a divorce. So a police manhunt ensued, although it was unnecessary. Christie had simply driven out of town to a spa, possibly to get her mind off her tumultuous home life. She had checked into the spa under the name of her husband's new lover. Um, Agatha made no mention of it in her later autobiography. 
Some speculated it was a publicity stunt, while others believe the family's claim that she had experienced some kind of fugue state. She disassociated. Her husband uh, told reporters at the time that she had no memory of him or of their conversation. It was not brought up again, though, uh, and the Christie's promptly divorced. So after divorcing Archie, uh, Agatha married archaeologist Max Malawan in 1930 and joined him for regular expeditions to Syria and Iraq. Uh, in 2005, HarperCollins published Come Tell Me How You Live, the author's long-forgotten 1946 memoir of her experiences traveling. Although she assisted her husband on digs, she never stopped working on her writing. Their preferred method of transport was frequently the Orient Express, a fact that likely inspired her one of her most famous stories, Murder on the Orient Express. So not all of Christie's work had a mortality rate. Beginning in, the in 1930 and continuing through 1956, she wrote six romance novels under the pen name Mary Westmacott. The pseudonym was a con construct of her middle name, Mary, and Westmacott, which was the surname of some of her relatives. And it wasn't found out uh, about Westmacott until 20 years after she died. Uh, in 1958, Christie accepted the presidency of the London Detection Club, or Famous Detection Club, a so social assembly of notable crime writers in England. Members swore, mostly tongue-in-cheek, to never keep vital clues from their readers and to never use entirely fictional poisons as a plot crutch. Christie was a member in good standing and took on the role of honorary president on one condition. She never wanted to give any speeches. Which, I mean, same. Uh, like Arthur Conan Doyle before her, Christie eventually grew tired of her trademark character and set about having Hercule Poirot perish in the 1975 novel Curtain. The reaction to his demise was so fierce that the New York Times published a front-page obituary for the character on August 6th, the first and only time that that has happened. Christie died the following year. With between two and four billion works sold, depending on your source, she is bested only by William Shakespeare and the Bible. Her books have been adapted into, 20, into 27 films, as well as into television shows and even video games. So that's all I have on Agatha Christie, so we'll just go on to the book now. Uh, the Mysterious Affair at Styles was her first novel. In it, she introduced Hercule Poirot, her eccentric and egotistic Belgian detective, Poirot reappeared in about 25 novels and many short stories before returning to Styles, where, in Curtin, in 1975, he died. The Mysterious Affair at Styles was written in 1916 and was published in the United States in October of 1920 and in the United Kingdom in January of 1921. The story is told in first person by Captain Hastings, who is kind of Poirot's Watson, um, and features many of the elements that have become icons of the golden age of detective fiction, which we'll talk about. Um, in a little bit. Largely due to Christie's influence, these um, elements took hold. So it's set in a large, isolated country manor. There are a half dozen suspects, most of whom are hiding facts about themselves. The book includes maps of the house, the murder scene, and a drawing of a fragment of a will, as well as a number of red herrings and surprise, surprise plot twists. The Times Literary Supplement of February 3rd, 1921, gave the book an extremely enthusiastic, if short, review, which stated, quote, The only fault this story has is that it is almost too ingenious, end quote. It went on to describe the basic setup of the plot and concluded, quote, It is said to be the author's first book and the result of a bet about the possibility of writing a detective story in which the reader would not be able to spot the criminal. Every reader must admit that the bet was won, end quote. 
the New York Times book review of December 20th, 1920 was also impressed. This is a longer quote. Quote, Though this may be the first published book of Miss Agatha Christie, she betrays the cunning of an old hand. You must wait for the last but one chapter in the book for the last link in the chain of evidence that enabled Mr. Poirot to unravel the whole complicated plot and lay the guilt where it really belonged. And you may safely make a wager with yourself that until you have heard M. Poirot's final word on the mysterious affair at Styles, you will be kept guessing at its solution and will most certainly never lay down this most entertaining book. End quote. Poirot was described as a delightful little old man. So that's the reception that the book received. It was not the first book that um, made her really famous. The first one was the next book, which was um, the Roger Ackroyd Affair, I believe. But now we're going to talk a little bit about the golden age of detective fiction. So uh, it was an era of classical murder mystery novels of similar patterns and styles, predominantly in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, certain conventions and cliches were established for this type of detective fiction that limited any surprises on the part of the reader to the details of the plot, and primarily to the identity of the murderer. The majority of, no of novels of that era were whodunits, and several authors excelled after misleading their readers successfully in revealing the least likely suspect convincingly as the villain. There was also a predilection for certain casts of characters and certain settings in a secluded English country house and its upper-class inhabitants. Although they were generally landed gentry, not aristocracy with their country house as a second house. The rules of the game, and the Golden Age mysteries were considered games, were codified in 1929 by Ronald Knox. According to Knox, a detective story, quote, must have as its main interest the unraveling of a mystery, a mystery whose elements are clearly presented to the reader at an early stage in the proceedings and whose nature is such as to arouse curiosity, a curiosity which is gratified at the end. end quote. Knox also um, wrote a Ten Commandments for detective fiction, so I'm just going to read you a couple of them. Some of them are a little bit racist, so we'll ignore that one. But, uh, so here are some of his uh, commandments. The criminal must be mentioned in the early part of the story, but must not be anyone whose thoughts the readers has been allowed to know. All supernatural or preternatural agencies are ruled out as a matter of course. Not more than one secret room or passage is allowable. No hitherto undiscovered poisons may be used, nor any appliance which will need a long scientific explanation at the end. No accident must ever help the detective, nor must he ever have an unaccountable intuition which proves to be right. Detective, the detective himself must not commit the crime. The detective is bound to declare any clues which he may discover. The sidekick of the detective, the Watson, must not conceal from the reader any thoughts which pass through his mind. His intelligence must be slightly, but very slightly, below that of the average reader. And the last one, twin brothers and doubles generally must not appear unless we have been duly prepared for them. I like that. No surprise twins. So we're not writing soap operas, that's basically what he's saying. Uh, the outbreak of the Second World War is often taken as the beginning of the end for the light-hearted, straightforward whodunit of the Golden Age. So now we're going to go on to our reader tags. The first one is hashtag who rule the world. Girls. So... 
the golden age of detective fiction was dominated by the queens of crime, a term for authors Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, Marjorie Allingham, and Nio Marsh. Uh, the, they uh, wrote some of the greatest um, novels of the golden age. The next tag is hashtag nonviolence. So while murder is typically needed to set a murder mystery in motion, Christie's preferred methodology for slaying her characters was poison. She had worked in a dispensary during wartime and had an intimate knowledge of pharmaceuticals. Rarely did her, her protagonist carry a gun. Her two most famous detectives, Miss Marple and Hercule Perrault, were virtually pacifists. So there's no crazy violent deaths. Um, there are, however, this next tag, hashtag creative kills. In addition to using poison to dispatch her characters, Christie killed her fictional victims in the following ways. Strangled by a raincoat belt. Strangled by, by a ukulele string. Jabbed in the neck with a venom-tipped dart. Stabbed with a corn knife. Stabbed with an ornamental Tunisian dagger. Drowned in an apple tub. Crushed by a bear-shaped mar marble clock. And electrocuted by a chessboard rigged to deliver the fatal charge upon completion of the third move of the Roy Lopez opening. I mean, come on. She was great. Okay, so now we'll just read the first few pages of the book. Chapter 1. I Go to Styles. The intense interest aroused in the public by what was known at the time as the Styles case has now somewhat subsided. Nevertheless, in view of the worldwide notoriety which attended it, I have been asked both by my friend Poirot and the family themselves to write an account of the whole story. This, we trust, will effectually silence the sensational rumors which still persist. I will, therefore, briefly set down the circumstances which led to my being connected with the affair. I had been invalided home from the front, and after spending some months in a rather depressing convalescent home, was given a month's sick leave. Having no near relations or friends, I was trying to make up my mind what to do when I ran across John Cavendish, I had seen very little of him for some years. Indeed, I had never known him particularly well. He was a good fifteen years my senior, for one thing, though he hardly looked his forty-five years. As a boy, though, I had often stayed at Stiles, his mother's place in Essex. We had a good yarn about old times, and it ended in his inviting me down to Stiles to spend my leave there. The matter will be delighted to see you again after all these years, he added. Your mother keeps well, I asked. Oh, yes, I suppose you know she has married again. I am afraid I showed my surprise rather plainly. Mrs. Cavendish, who had married John's father when he was a widower with two sons, had been a handsome woman of middle age, as I remembered her. She certainly could not be a day less than seventy now. I recalled her as an energetic, autocratic personality, somewhat inclined to charitable and social notoriety, with a fondness for opening bazaars and playing the Lady Bountiful. She was the most generous woman, and possessed a considerable fortune of her own. Their country place, Stiles Court, had been purchased by Mr. Cavendish early in their married life. He had been completely under his wife's ascendancy, so, so much so that, on dying, he left the place to her for her lifetime, as well as the larger part of his income, an arrangement that was distinctly unfair to his two sons. Their stepmother, however, had always been most generous to them. Indeed, they were so young at the time of their father's remarriage that they always thought of her as their own mother. Lawrence, the younger, had been a delicate youth. 
He had qualified as a doctor, but early relinquished the profession of medicine and lived at home while pursuing literary ambitions, though his verses never had any marked success. John practiced for some time as a barrister, but had finally settled down to the more congenial life of a country squire. He had married two years ago and had taken his wife to live at Stiles, though I entertained a shrewd suspicion that he would have preferred his mother to increase his allowance, which would have enabled him to have a home of his own. Miss Cavendish, Mrs. Cavendish, however, was a lady who liked to make her own plans, and expected other people to fall in with them, and in this case she certainly had the whip hand, namely the purse strings. John noticed my surprise at the news of his mother's remarriage, and rather rueful and smiled rather ruefully. "'Rotten little bounder, too,' he said savagely. "'I can tell you, Hastings, it's making life jolly difficult for us. "'As for Evie, you remember Evie?' "'No?' "'Oh, I suppose she was after your time. "'She's the matter's factotum, companion, jack of all trades. "'A great sport, old Evie. "'Not precisely young and beautiful, but as game as they make them.' "'You were going to say?' Oh, this fellow. He turned up from nowhere on the pretext of being a second cousin or something of Evie's, though she didn't seem particularly keen to acknowledge the relationship. The fellow is an out absolute outsider. Anyone can see that. He's got a great black beard and wears patent leather boots in all weathers. But the matter cottoned to him at once. Took him on as secretary. You know how she's always running a hundred societies. I nodded. Well, of course, the war had turned the hundreds into thousands. No doubt the fellow was very useful to her, but... You could have knocked us all down with a feather when three months ago she suddenly announced that she and Alfred were engaged. The fellow must be at least twenty years younger than she is. It's simply barefaced fortune hunting. But there you are. She is her own mistress, and she's married him. Must be a difficult situation for you all. Difficult. It's damnable. Thus it came about that, three days later, I descended from the train at Stile St. Mary, an absurd little station with no apparent reason for existence, perched up in the midst of green fields and country lanes. John Cavendish was waiting on the platform and piloted me out to the car. "'Got a drop or two of petrol still, you see,' he remarked, mainly owing to the matter's activities. So we'll stop there. That's um, not quite the full first chapter of um, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Uh, I think I'm going to keep reading it. I really like the way it's written, and I've never actually read any Agatha Christie, so I'm going to give it a try. Hopefully you guys will too. Let me know what to think. Um, you can find us on Twitter at CP Library, on Facebook at Carlton Place Public Library, and I'll see you next week. Bye, guys.